Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And happy Friday, everyone. We're glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. He's Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Good, bad, crazy martinis. Not even close to the 15 crazies we feared at the beginning of the week. But, uh, hey, next week's a whole new week, and you never know what's going to happen there. Jim, our good martini today is that uh, we got a pretty good jobs report. The overall number wasn't fantastic, but uh, some of the indicators are looking pretty darn good. And once again, the unemployment rate is down. So from CNBC... Unemployment hit a fresh 50-year low in September, even though uh, payrolls rose by just 136,000. It was expected to be 145,000. Jobless rate down 0.2% to 3.5, lowest since December 1969, so almost 50-year low. Uh, We also have a decline in the number of discouraged and underemployed, falling 0.3%, and that's the lowest in nearly 19 years. Uh, We also have the lowest jobless rate ever for Hispanics, uh, maintaining the lowest level of unemployment ever for African Americans, a little bit of a sluggish month for wages at 2.9%, lowest since July 2018, but uh, overall wages are still doing better than they were for most of the past decade. So, uh, Jim, what do you make of the numbers? Again, this is not perfect. Um, This is not, you know, you'd like to see that overall job creation number a little bit higher But the fact that it brought the uh, unemployment rate overall down to 3.5% is the big headline that's going to come out of it. It's the one that the Trump administration is going to just love. My guess is this will start popping up in the president's speeches and and various comments like that. There have been a couple points in the last two years where one, you know, jobs report has come out and it's not been that great. Um, You and I have talked about the tariffs in the past. I think it's very clear this is beginning to have an effect on U.S. manufacturing. It's definitely having an effect on U.S. exports. You have this point where you're like, you know, in the last month or two, you've really heard that, oh, here comes the Trump recession. Oh, it's going to hit just at the worst possible time for his presidential reelection bid. This is really bad timing. Here it comes. Here it comes. And then we get this job report. <laughs> and this job report doesn't look that bad at all. It looks pretty good. Do you worry about exports? Sure. Do you worry about manufacturing? Sure. Um, would you like wage growth to be a little more consistent month to month? Sure. But overall, this is still another really good jobs report. It's consecutive. And if the single strongest argument in favor of the president's reelection is a good economy, then we are one month closer to the election day with a continuing good economy. And I think, you know, like, look, we're going to go through the impeachment drama. Um, Trump periodically likes to say, how could you possibly want to impeach somebody who's the most successful president in history? You know, that doesn't make the accusation of a crime any more true or any more false. But look, that was a big factor in the protection of Bill Clinton. Um, The country was doing well. There was a perception of peace and prosperity. We knew Al-Qaeda in retrospect was lurking out there. But, uh, you know, this is around the peak, the the accelerating towards the peak of the dot-com boom. Americans are feeling really good about stuff. They weren't interested in changing things. And that may be a factor in the coming impeachment fight for the president. So all in all, um, good for the country, good for the GOP, good for the president. Uh, very bad news for anybody who was expecting this to kick off a, a conveniently timed recession right before the 2020 election. Yeah, a lot of predictions about that uh, happening this year. And so far, we've uh, avoided it quite well. Uh, the GDP numbers have been disappointing, but nowhere near Uh, negative territory, certainly. 
All right, let's move to uh, the bad martini here, Jim. And while we're still digging into the whole whistleblower complaint from the intelligence community, uh, the inspector general over at the State Department has now been in communication with House Democrats, and I assume mainly the Schiff Committee, because they're the ones that held the closed-door hearings on this yesterday, a series of text messages, which makes you conclude that you shouldn't conduct diplomacy via text threads. But the committees have uh, now obtained text messages uh, from Ambassador Kurt Volker, the former special representative for Ukraine negotiations. Uh, in these texts, he's communicating with other officials, including Bill Taylor, the charge d'affaires, I always love that term, of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, Gordon Sondland, U.S. Ambassador to the EU, uh, and another guy who's an aide to Ukrainian President Zelensky. Rudy Giuliani's on some of these as well. And um, over at Hot Air, they've done a good job of uh, putting some of these together, mainly involving Bill Taylor as well as Gordon Sondland. So that's the charge d'affaires as well as the ambassador to the EU. Taylor's much more worried about uh, what's going on with Ukraine policy than Sondland here. This is uh, September 1st with these text messages all the way to uh, September 9th. Taylor, are we now saying that security assistance and the White House meeting are conditioned on investigations? Sondland, call me. Taylor, Gordon and I just spoke. Can I brief you if you and Gordon don't connect? Taylor, again, the nightmare is they give the interview and don't get the security assistance. The Russians love it. And then in parenthesis, I quit. Taylor, again, the message to the Ukrainians and Russians we send with the decision on security assistance is key. With the hold, we have already shaken their faith in us. Thus, my nightmare scenario. Taylor, again, counting on you to be right about this interview, Gordon. Sondland, Bill, I never said I was right. I said we are where we are, and we believe we have identified the best pathway forward. Let's hope it works. Taylor, as I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign, obviously suggesting quid pro quo. Then Sondland, very different approach here. Bill, I believe you're incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear. No quid pro quos of any kind. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. And uh, that was probably the best advice of all. So, Jim, it's kind of like the Rorschach test we saw with the transcript. Some people see the quid pro quo. Some people don't. So how does this change the game? Yeah, I mean, this, first of all, it says pretty clearly Bill Taylor right there. He certainly sees a quid pro quo taking shape before his eyes. I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. That's about as explicit as it gets. Now, the interesting thing is that Sondland, who several times saying, who's saying, let's talk on the phone. Let's stop texting about this. Let's stop creating a paper trail that can be subpoenaed. I am paraphrasing. I'm pulling an Adam Schiff here. You know, but certainly the subtext there is, look, let's stop writing this down. Let's stop. Let's start communicating in a format that is uh, less easy to go back and check against. The argument that, you know, oh, you know, the president, you know, is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly trying to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. First of all, Greg, before this, did Trump say anything about Ukrainian outside of the Biden context, has he ever said anything about this? I notice he hasn't said anything about like Duarte in, in the Philippines. He certainly hasn't said anything about corruption in, in uh, Russian government under Putin. Trump does not seem like a guy who's front and center fighting corruption all around the globe in other countries' governments. In fact, if you look at the way he's dealt with China and Russia and North Korea and a whole bunch of these regimes, it's basically a look, we're not going to meddle in your internal affairs. We want uh, we'll look after our interests. We're not going to focus on human rights. We're not going to focus on, on other issues like that. So the idea that Trump has suddenly been 
reinvented as this good government activist and that he sees his mission in life to clean up foreign governments is a little tough to take. And again, if you want to say, well, this is just part of the president's much broader commitment to clean government, okay, point to other examples of this that didn't tie to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Um, if it's as obvious everybody says is it should be very easy, very easy to see, but uh, not seeing it very much uh, so far here. Um, now again, this this is this maybe tie, you know, ties into our forthcoming martini here. Um, I should say forthcoming as in one word, not forth as in an extra one. <laughs> You're right. This is a Rojak test because this certainly look certainly. Bill Taylor sees a quid pro quo, and he's very nervous about participating in this. He really sees this as a uh, spectacularly wrong-headed decision. He clearly believes they've already withheld uh, or put a hold on the security assistance to Ukraine. He points out it's shaken the Ukrainians' faith in Americans. He says they're sending a message to the Russians. You know, he calls it his nightmare scenario. At one point, he says he contemplates the scenario in which you know the Ukrainians do what they're supposed to do or what Trump wants. And then he still doesn't give him the security assistance. And he says, the Russians love it and I quit. You know, this is a very ugly portrait of U.S. policy here in which it looks like Trump has no real interest in protecting Ukraine. Uh, no real concern about this is a country that's still being invaded by Russia. And that his only interest is getting some dirt on Biden. This is really bad. Now, the, the Sondland version of the, of the side of the conversation is, hey, this is all part of a broader policy. There is no quid pro quo. Gordon Sondland talks like a guy who knows this conversation could end up being subpoenaed at some point <laughs> and put out to the public here. So, but again, it's probably, again, is this going to be enough to make Republicans jump off the bandwagon? Probably not. Is this, you know, anything in here going to make Democrats jump off the bandwagon in favor of impeachment? Probably not either. So it's dramatic, but not much changes, Greg. Jim, quick follow-up on this, and maybe it's a two-headed follow-up, because uh, the thing that, that Trump first brings up to Zelensky in the transcript and hasn't gotten a ton of attention is uh, trying to find out what happened with CrowdStrike, because everyone's been pushing Trump hard, right and left, for him to figure out and actually care about what happened in the uh, meddling into the 2016 elections, and that would fall into that category. So if he hadn't brought up the Bidens, but had brought up CrowdStrike, which you know, involves the DNC servers and so forth and could potentially be embarrassing uh, to the Democrats. Would that fall into the same category? And secondly, what we're waiting on, in addition to any more stones being uncovered with this particular investigation, is what's coming from the DOJ. We've still got the IG report coming on FISA abuses and the more wide-ranging Durham uh, report coming possibly sometime soon on other things that happened in, in what led to the probe of the Trump campaign back in 2016. And so these these two things are going to collide here in a massive explosion at some point. The only question is when and where the momentum goes from there, right? If Trump had not mentioned the Biden in that first in that conversation with Zelensky, that conversation would have largely been a dud because I don't know um, if Democrats would have gotten nearly as fired up of, how dare you ask the Ukrainians to, first of all, the idea that you crowd strike, move the, the server to Ukraine or something. I mean, it sounds like kind of like a nutty conspiracy theory, but in the end, yeah, okay, fine. You want to investigate 2016, investigate 2016. What's done is done. Um, I think the much bigger one is here, like, like this, the, the other, other kind of, you know, under expressed concern here is that at some point the Ukrainians do look into Burisma and they do find something pointing back to Hunter Biden that is really, you know, dirty and shady and, and you know, makes Joe Biden look bad. 
Um, I don't think that's the, we haven't seen any evidence that that's there. But let's say uh, Burisma was involved in a vast effort to uh, bribe Ukrainian officials or something or uh, do something bad environmentally or, or some, there was some sort of scandal involving Burisma. And they fire the state prosecutor just as the state prosecutor is about to look into Burisma and Hunter Biden's on the board. Well, then you got a real scandal there. Then you really have something worthwhile. But that's that's, that's looking down the road. That's future stuff. Looking at the past, I think they'll be much less uh, concerned about it. The investigation into how the 2016 investigation into Trump began. Look, first of all, this is a huge deal about why Trump voters aren't all that bothered by this, is that they already feel like their guy had been done dirty. So all that we're seeing here is turnabout being fair play. And oh, by the way, the argument that, uh, again, there's enough there around Hunter Biden and Burisma Holdings to say, okay, something funny is going on. They should investigate into this. It's one of those things like we've heard the current state of Washington and you could argue the criminalization of our politics, the idea that, you know, law enforcement is, you know, first law enforcement was investigating Hillary and FBI and her emails. Then there was the investigation into Trump. Then there was Russiagate. Now there's this investigation into how the 2016 investigation began. It's this constant waiting game. And this current rumor is up. Wait till this IG report comes out. Wait till that report comes out. It's going to be a bombshell. It's going to change Washington. We've had a whole bunch of these, Greg. Did Washington actually change in any of these? No. Comey came out, did his July 5th press conference and kind of said, tsk, tsk, Hillary Clinton. You were not so careful with your classified information. You're sloppy with your emails. And that was, it was, it was a herder. But I, again, I don't buy this Democratic idea that Comey swung the election. Um, Russiagate clearly was kind of a, a dud. And I, I don't know if you're going to find anything. I mean, you know, if anybody can get to the bottom of it, it's bar. But uh, I'm not expecting something that's bigger than Watergate and shakes America to the foundations, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, if I'm wrong, great. You know, we, we did have something huge revelation. But uh, my sneaking suspicion is, is that, you know, the forecast is for more of the same. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And let's wrap up the week with... AOC. And now it is the crazy martini, but we're not even talking about her interaction with the uh, town hall person who encouraged eating babies to ward off climate change. That's right. I ate a baby. The (laughs) other, other white meat. So putting that aside. Virgin, tender and mild in barbecue sauce. But they're not crazy and it's not a cult. So that's the important (laughs) thing. Okay. Anyway, AOC, uh, same town hall, though, uh, says she's bored with impeachment. She's already over it. I think the whole thing is boring, she said at the Queen's Library. He could have been impeached a long time ago. I'm over it. And so that's how I feel about it, because we've got work to do. And so what's the work to do? She says impeachment of this president is the short-term action we need to preserve our democracy. But if we're really going to thrive as a country, we need to make long-term investments and keep our eyes on the prize of social and economic and racial justice in the United States of America. And that's what this is all about. So, Jim, uh, the never-ending effort to impeach the blankety-blank, as Rashida Tlaib said on the day she was sworn into office, uh, is really about getting back to uh, wokeness and, and the Green New Deal. All this talk about impeachment is distracting us from these radical goals. Darn it. Yeah, I mean, this is a rare moment in which I kind of sort of agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Because it is so unlikely that uh, you're going to see, I mean, is it possible Democrats will fall short of 218 votes? I think for a while that was possible. I think as soon as Nancy Pelosi went forward, she and every other House Democrat realized that if for some reason they introduced articles of impeachment and they didn't pass, then, you know, you would see President Trump twerking on the White House lawn, uh, that you would basically 
this would be handing Trump one more victory. It would be very much on par with the end of the Mueller report. And if you thought Trump was, you know, unleashed before, you know, look out. So it's pretty clear. We all know the House is going to impeach him in one way or another. Could something dramatic change? Yeah, sure. But, you know, does this risk the House majority? Sure, because there are at least a good chunk of Democrats who won districts that Trump had more votes than Hillary in 2016. They're going to have to vote for impeachment, but they've decided they've, they've run the numbers in their head or, or they believe that their constituents are going to stick with them and not vote against them in 2020. We kind of know how the Senate's vote's going to go. Is it possible some folks like Mitt Romney or maybe Ben Sass decide to vote for Trump's impeachment? Yeah, I guess it could, they, they well, could well happen. Is it possible a couple of Democrats are hesitant, like the Joe Manchins of the world? Sure. Um, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Doug Jones is ready to lose his seat in Alabama. He's probably going to lose his seat either way, so he might as well vote the way he believes is right. You know, you're going to get something akin to a party line vote on this, which means you're probably going to get, you know, 47, maybe 49 if you keep all the Democrats, you know, votes in favor of impeachment. You're going to get 50 to 51 votes against it, maybe even 53 if Romney and Sass and folks like that aren't convinced. And it's nowhere near the two thirds majority that you need. They may not even hit the majority of the entire Senate. And there you go. That's where we are. That's what it's going to be. And, uh, you know, at that point, the 2020 election will begin in earnest. Um, there's an interesting theory put out by Matthew Continetti this morning, who basically says, look, this is not about winning the impeachment vote. This is about uh, worsening the country's exhaustion with Trump. This is, you know, the argument is that actually the Clinton impeachment worked for Republicans. The American people were ready to move on. They were tired of Bill Clinton. They didn't want to remove him from office, but they were kind of thought the whole thing was tawdry and salacious. And, and you know, they, were, they couldn't let their kids watch the news in 1998 and 99. And they were ready to move on to a very different kind of president. So they went on with George W. Bush. That could that could be at play in 2020. I also think that, um, boy, oh boy, this has got to be the greatest turnout machine that Trump could ever want um, to see the impeachment effort against him. But uh, I, I think we, you know, we are where we are. And we're, you know, we're, this is a, so far, this has been a very predictable process, Greg. And I think it's going to be, a, this thing is going to pass more slowly than a kidney stone. And they're also very, very painful. So get ready, America. Jim, have a great weekend. We will see you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today on the Three Martini Lunch. We hope we're not painful for you. If you like us, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. We'd love that. Also, leave us a great review. We love that, too. Hope you have a great weekend. And we'll be right back here Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.